0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Alyssa Smith, and today we're joined by pediatric otolaryngologist, Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan. On today's episode, we'll be discussing pediatric tracheal stenosis. Thanks for being here, Dr. Balakrishnan. Thank you, Alyssa. So, to start, I know that these patients can present in a number of different settings, whether it be in clinic or on the inpatient side, but how do patients typically present when they have tracheal stenosis?
1: It's a great question. Um it can really vary quite a lot. You know, one of the things that Dr. Wood uh, at Cincinnati taught all of us was that you can't trust a baby because children can hide bad airway problems very effectively often because they just for instance don't take a deep enough breath to muster up enough airflow to generate stridor. So, it really can vary, but in general I think you could say comfortably that the symptoms vary depending on the severity, location and length of the stenosis. Uh, and also on the age and size of the baby and any associated health problems they might have.
0: So when we get a consult on the inpatient side for a pediatric patient with noisy breathing what clues should we pay attention to that may make us have a high suspicion for tracheal involvement of stenosis?
1: Yeah so the um, it's a really important question because in babies in particular, uh, obstruction at one level of the airway can mimic Obstruction at other levels of the airway very effectively. So sometimes the presentation is not specific to a particular condition, and it's more a question of being alert to the possibility of tracheostenosis or other significant airway problems. So some of the things we look at, for instance, strider. That's the classic symptom of noisy breathing related to turbulent airflow through a narrow or irregular airway. Generally, the strider can be associated with the location in the airway. So if it's a tracheal problem, particularly mid or distal trachea, you can have expiratory noise. If it's a cervical tracheal problem, you can have inspiratory noise. But those things are not entirely accurate. They're good clues, but they're not perfect. Uh, otherwise, things like wheezing, a barky or harsh or brassy cough can be concerning. Uh, retractions or increased work of breathing are very concerning. In fact, more concerning than stridor is. Recurrent pulmonary infections, cyanotic episodes, uh, altis are now called bruies, these uh, sort of dying spells babies can have, uh, feeding difficulties, failure to thrive. In older kids, you can see exercise intolerance. And then depending on how bad the stenosis is, you can even have voice problems if it either extends up toward the glottis uh, or if the uh, airflow is so poor that the child can't generate a strong voice.
0: So, before we move on to further workup of these patients, I think it's important to touch on a differential diagnosis and possible etiologies for this stenosis. Can you elaborate on things that we should be thinking about as far as different causes?
1: Absolutely. So, we can think of three types of causes for narrowing of the airway. The first is what you could think of as a true stenosis, an endoluminal uh, stenosis or scar that's going to come commonly from. Post intubation injury, congenital tracheal webs, thermal injuries, infection. Sometimes it can be entirely idiopathic and you never really know what caused it. Then you can have more problems of the exoskeleton of the airway, cartilaginous problems, so things like complete tracheal rings, which we can talk about a little bit later, but essentially the normal horseshoe shaped cartilages of the trachea are replaced by complete O shaped rings, or even a sleeve trachea, which is just a tube of cartilage. And then you can have More dynamic problems of the uh, cartilage, so things like tracheomalacia, and then you can have extrinsic compression, which is not in and of itself a stenosis, but it can act very much the same way, and that could be from things like vascular compression, most commonly, Uh, mediastinal masses can do it, Uh, or you can have actually posterior compression from the esophagus. So uh, children who have a distal esophageal narrowing or obstruction or poor function can actually have impacted food cause posterior uh, intrusion into the trachea as well.
0: So it sounds like there's a lot of different things that we should be thinking about. And maybe we can go through a couple of them to touch on pathogenesis a little bit. Um, So as far as tracheal malaysia goes, how exactly does that happen? What causes um, that increased compliance?
1: So tracheal malacia is different in children and in adults. So in adults, we're used to hearing the sort of post-intubation tracheal where the ET tube cuff or trach cuff was blown up too high and you get ischemia of the tracheal cartilage and it becomes soft or floppy. Less common in kids, uh, and what we see more common in kids is either intrinsic weakness or softness or immaturity of the cartilage, or more likely a wide cartilaginous arch. So instead of having your normal four or five to one relationship of cartilage to membranous trachea in terms of the circumference, Uh, it might be as bad as one-to-one because you have a very wide cartilaginous arch and therefore a wide posterior membranous trachea as well. Um, And so then what ends up happening is if it's a more distal tracheal uh, problem or intrathoracic tracheal problem, when you breathe out during expiration, the intrathoracic pressure is higher than the intraluminal tracheal pressure and you get collapse. You can have the opposite if it's cervical involvement where when you breathe in, you get collapse. Uh, as well.
0: And then you also mentioned uh, external compressions from things like vasculature. What are the different vessels that can cause compression?
1: I think it's important first to distinguish tracheomalacia from a vascular compression. A lot of people will do an endoscopy and see some, for example, innominate artery compression of the anterior trachea, and they'll call it tracheomalacia. That's not tracheomalacia. Tracheomalacia is collapsibility of the airway that varies with the respiratory cycle. Now that said, vascular compression can exacerbate trachea malacia. And so the most common thing we see is inominate compression, where the innominate artery runs superolaterally from left to right across the front of the mid-trachea and squashes the trachea a little bit. And we know that airways that are already a little narrow tend to collapse more. And so that tends to be a collapse point for children who have a somewhat malacic airway to begin with. Other common causes uh, are what you might call rings and slings. So vascular rings, double aortic arch is the most common, typically a dominant right aorta with a smaller left aortic arch. Um, And this happens in embryology when the distal right fourth branchial arch doesn't involute as it ought to. And so you get this paired aortas. Uh, And then you can see things like pulmonary artery sling, where instead of having symmetric pulmonary arteries coming off the main pulmonary artery, you have a very dominant right-sided pulmonary artery and a small left one that branches off the right side and hooks between the trachea and the esophagus and causes some compression.
0: And then we've talked about lots of different things that can cause narrowing or stenosis. Can a child be born with something like agenesis or no trachea?
1: Yeah. So you can have tracheal agenesis. Uh, It's a failure of recanalization, we think, of the trachea during uh, embryonic development. Um, This is classified as the Floyd classification, where in type 1, uh, your proximal trachea is absent, but you have a distal TE fistula and a distal trachea and bronchi present. Type 2, your carina is arising directly from your esophagus. In type 3, you actually have separate mainstem bronchi coming off the esophagus. You can imagine that these are pretty life-threatening circumstances. The mortality is nearly universal. There have been a few very bold surgical corrections done Uh, in the literature. Uh, This is uh, perhaps more common, relatively speaking, with vactoral. And an important thing here is that if you have tracheal or laryngeal atresia, uh, sometimes you can have children present with what's called chaos or congenital high airway obstruction syndrome, which has some characteristic prenatal imaging findings that'll give you a warning. However, if there is a small TE fistula or even a pinhole opening in the larynx, uh, you may not see those characteristic findings, and this can be a very unpleasant surprise at delivery.
0: So moving on to workup of these patients, if a patient comes into clinic or you're seeing them as a consult, what are some important questions on history that you should be asking either the parents or the child if they're old enough or even the inpatient team that's taking care of them?
1: Yeah. So as with any patient with airway concerns, I think it's really important to ask about their prenatal history, their perinatal history. Do they need intubation, supplemental oxygen, things like that? what has their growth and development and feeding been like? Uh, you know, Do they have symptoms of breathing problems? So cyanosis, retractions, apneas, needing CPR, strider? Do they have voice concerns? Uh, and in the kids who are old enough to run around and play, you can ask parents to compare them to their uh, age peers to see if their activity seems limited by their breathing. Uh, do they have to stop more often to catch their breath? Things like that. In babies, you can focus more on feeding and say, do they have to stop feeding frequently to catch their breath because feeding is a very calorie intensive activity for babies. Certainly, you want to know how old they were when they started to have symptoms. You want to know about recurrent respiratory infections, uh, whether they've been hospitalized for those, whether they've been intubated or have a tracheostomy in the past. Uh, and then you want to dig into associated diagnoses. So things like, for instance, Cruzon, Pfeiffer, and Goldenhar syndrome can be associated with congenital tracheostenosis or tracheal sleeve, Uh, And actually, one study from Seattle a few years ago suggested that 22% of syndromic craniosynostosis kids can have this tracheal anomaly. So it's a lot. Um, You can ask about a history of congenital heart disease. Um, An enlarged heart by itself can cause tracheal compression, but also um, a lot of children with congenital heart disease can have other airway anomalies. You want to ask about things like tracheoesophageal fistula, because that can be strongly associated with tracheomalacia. Uh, And then you want to ask about known vascular malformations, uh, and I mean that as great vessel, not as in uh, vascular anomalies, uh, but things like pulmonary artery sling, which can be associated strongly with complete tracheal rings.
0: And so then usually our next step in workup is our physical exam. What should we specifically be looking for on physical exam?
1: So first thing is, um, as with any airway patient, is do your primary survey. Does this kid look stable? You know, are their ABCs okay? Uh, If they are, then you can take a moment and assess them more. Uh, So again, you want to do a craniofacial exam looking for syndromic findings. Uh, You want to look for any neurologic deficits. You want to listen to their heart uh, and lungs to make sure they have good air movement, that they have normal rate and rhythm and a normally located heart, for instance. Uh, And I generally would recommend doing all of these non-airway things first so that your brain doesn't get satisfied if you find an airway problem and miss something else. Uh, once you're done all that, then you can do your respiratory exam. You know, you can look at the neck, you can feel the trachea, see if it's normally developed and placed, larynx, same thing. Uh, you can listen to the child's voice and cry, uh, and then you can assess them feeding uh, and potentially even do something like a fees evaluation uh, while you're there.
0: And then I assume we would be doing a, a flexible laryngoscopy just as our initial evaluation before any other. Uh, more, maybe, invasive airway evaluation. What are we supposed to be assessing on laryngoscopy?
1: Yeah, so the, typically, yes, you would do a flexible laryngoscopy as part of your clinic workup. Um, you want to be careful in kids who have congenital heart disease, particularly if it's uncorrected, because you can trigger things like bradycardic events and vagal events or, or laryngospasms that might be life threatening. Uh, but assuming that you've thought about that, um, you want to look for, first of all, other airway anomalies. Again, it's really easy to go looking at the larynx, and miss something higher up. So you want to check both sides of the nose, check the coena, check the pharynx, tongue base, and so on. Then when you check the larynx, uh, you're going to look for the structure of the larynx, vocal fold motion, uh, things like that. And then if you can get a view of the subglottis, that's great. There are some uh, folks who will do awake tracheoscopy, even in infants. I have done that on rare occasions. Uh, But typically, if they're younger than, let's say, age five, they don't tolerate it terribly well. And you have to move so fast with the scope that You don't actually see anything until later when you review the video. Um, But certainly awake tracheoscopy is also an option.
0: And then how about imaging? Is there any role for obtaining x-rays or CT scans?
1: Um, There certainly is. So, you know, often these kids will come with an x-ray. It can be useful. You might see obstructive hyperinflation, narrowing of the tracheal air column, but you might not. And if they're crying or their neck is bent or their head is turned or whatever, it, it may not look particularly clear what is going on. Um, you have other options. Um, so airway fluoroscopy uh, can be used. It can show dynamic uh, changes, for instance, with tracheomalacia. Um, it may be useful in kids who can't tolerate bronchoscopy and uh, and so on, but it's less sensitive for mild compression. You can add to its utility by doing bronchography with contrast. Uh, this is done more often, for instance, in Europe, uh, where for very tight tracheal stenosis, where you can't get an endoscope through, they'll actually Uh, drip some contrast down the airway and do fluoroscopy to outline the airway and measure it. Um, CT scan is commonly used, especially in the U.S. Um, It's great for comprehensive evaluation. Uh, You can do 3D reconstruction. And importantly, if you do with contrast, you can also get detail about the great vessels and heart, given that we know that many of these tracheal anomalies are associated with uh, heart and vessel abnormalities. Um, However, it's really hard to get dynamic data in the trachea uh, with that. Video fluoroscopic swallow study, or uh, it it may be useful for concerns for aspiration. Um, But the other thing that's uh, often going to be useful is things like an esophagram, uh, where you can look for indentation of the esophagus suggestive of a vascular ring.
0: And then I know a lot of these uh, etiologies for tracheal stenosis, like the complete tracheal rings and the sleeve that we talked about, are associated with syndromes. Do you refer all these patients for a genetic evaluation as well?
1: I often do. Um, We're in the process of investigating that. We don't know whether isolated tracheal stenosis is associated with any specific genetic anomaly. Um, But certainly if there's any suspicion for any sort of syndromic presentation, it's absolutely worth doing that.
0: And so usually next steps are going to the operating room for a more comprehensive airway evaluation. And I know we often do flexible and rigid bronchoscopy Can you speak to the role of each of those methods and the benefits of each?
1: Yeah. So they are complementary. Uh, They certainly don't replace each other. Flexible endoscopy shows you airway dynamics. So for things like malacia and vascular compression, it can be very useful. Another nice thing about flexible endoscopy is that you can assess what the airway looks like with different levels of PEEP uh, if you use a bronch adapter through an endotracheal tube uh, with the scope. Uh, which is very helpful to figure out how bad is the compression or collapsibility. Um, Flexible bronchoscopy also allows you to look more distally than most rigid scopes will let you do, and it lets you do things like bronchoalveolar lavage if you're worried about post-obstructive infections, aspiration, and so on. The advantage of a rigid airway endoscopy uh, is that it allows you to get perhaps more anatomic or structural detail. You get better pictures. Uh, You can Stent the airway open and push things out of the way if needed. And you can also palpate and get some tactile feedback if you're worried about whether a stenosis is firm or soft, for instance. Again, these are complementary examinations uh, rather than doing one or the other.
0: And then, can you describe what we should be seeing with a normal trachea? What are normal findings in our exam that we should kind of have in the back of our head for what we're looking for?
1: Yeah, so when, anytime you do an airway evaluation, you want to really look at the entire airway right from the tip of the nose down to the bronchi. So you want to look at all those things. But since we're focusing on tracheal stenosis today, let's assume you've looked at all those. Um, normally, you should see horseshoe-shaped cartilage rings that take up about four to five out of six parts of the of the circumference of the airway with uh, with the remainder formed by the musculomembranous posterior wall. Uh, the rings should be distinct. You should see Fine vessels in the mucosa, uh, and you should be able to trace this, uh, uh, sort of trace the lumen all the way down to the uh, carina and beyond.
0: And then what are some abnormal findings that we might see? um,
1: Starting from the top, so in kids with congenital tracheal stenosis, you might see perfectly circular or O-shaped cartilage rings with no membranous trachea. Uh, You may see tracheomalacia which you would typically in a child again see a wide cartilage arch with a wider posterior membrane, and this posterior membrane will collapse inward with the respiratory cycle. Uh, you may see vascular compression um, again half to two-thirds of the way down the trachea on the anterior wall, you'll see inominate compression, usually see a mild degree in most children, but uh, it's often not significant. Um, but if there's other kinds of vascular compression, you might see compression from different locations, including the side or posterior aspect. Um, you might see a sleeve trachea which looks quite smooth uh rather than complete rings, but still circular. Uh, and then another thing to look for is what's called a bronchosuis or a pig bronchus, which is basically a right upper lobe bronchus that takes off of the main trachea rather than the right main stem bronchus. This in and of itself is not a problem, uh, but it's something you'd have to consider if you proceed to do any kind of airway surgery.
0: And then when we're evaluating the stenosis that's present. How do you go about measuring the length or the diameter um, in evaluating the shape of it?
1: That's a very important question. We really need to be systematic about how we evaluate airway stenosis because the uh, the language has to be common across all of us so we know what we're talking about and can communicate with each other. So it's important to look at this in terms of severity. Uh, and when I say severity, I mean radial narrowing. Um, There is no validated system uh, for measuring tracheal stenosis as opposed to subglottic stenosis, which typically uses the Meyer-Cotton scale. However, um, the general consensus is that the Meyer-Cotton scale is also useful for tracheal stenosis, and that's what most of us are using now uh, until something better comes along. You also want to look at the length of the stenosis. Uh, And you can measure that in centimeters often by marking your bronchoscope uh, as you slide it in uh, along the length of the stenosis. Uh, You want to look at the shape. Is it a circular? Is it tortuous, corkscrew-shaped The character? Is it firm or soft? Uh, And does it appear to be cartilaginous or scar, Uh, for instance? uh, And then you want to look at the location. Does it involve the carina? Does it involve the larynx? Is it somewhere in between? Uh, So, those would be kind of the main things. Um, There are a lot of different ways to do this. People are using imaging software, uh, uh, you know, and all sorts of things. But again, a lot of us just keep it very basic here.
0: And so, you mentioned the Meyer Cotton grading system. And I know that we talked about this in the subglottic stenosis episode of the podcast. But can you go over briefly what that grading system is again?
1: Absolutely. So, uh, again, keep in mind, this is developed for the subglottis, but often applied to the trachea. Uh, essentially, it says that if you have a stenosis of 0 to 50%, that's a grade 1. 51 to 70% is grade 2. 71 to 99% grade 3. And grade 4 is a complete uh, occlusion.
0: So after evaluating the trachea, we'll often take a look down the bronchi as well. Um, how far do you look, and is there anything in particular that we're looking for in the bronchi?
1: It is... Um really important to see the airway as one unified structure. Uh, So you're absolutely right that we should look at the bronchi as well. Um, When you're doing this, it's really important not to try to force your bronchoscope or anything else through a stenotic segment, uh, because you could actually cause mucosal trauma with more edema and worsened obstruction, uh, particularly in congenital tracheal stenosis. It sort of has a funnel shape, and the distal segment is most stenotic. So if you try to shove something through there, you can create a critical or potentially unsalvageable airway. Um, that said, if you can get past that area to look at the carina and bronchi it is a wise thing to do, you'll sometimes see bronchial stenosis in the setting of tracheal stenosis. Uh, tracheal may be associated with bronchomalacia in up to 30% of kids. And you also want to look for things like post-obstructive infections, inflammation, and so on. Not to mention, I should say, if you have vascular compression of the airway, uh, sometimes you can have that at more than one location as well.
0: Right. And then moving on to our various treatment options. For patients with mild symptoms, can these patients be managed conservatively?
1: Absolutely. So uh, it kind of depends on the cause of the stenosis or narrowing. If you have mild tracheomalacia, sometimes those kids need nothing at all. Uh, A little bit more than that, they might need antibiotics for prolonged or recurrent respiratory infections. They might need inhaled steroids, sometimes things like bethanacol to cause essentially tension of the posterior membranous trachea to keep it open. Uh, If it's more of a stenosis than a malacia, the very mild kids will often outgrow this problem given time. Uh, But again, they might be a little more prone to worse symptoms with respiratory infections. They might need humidification, intermittent steroids, chest physiotherapy for both malaysia and stenosis.
0: And so thinking about the surgical options that are available, can we talk about uh, different options for each of the different causes of tracheal stenosis?
1: Sure. So let's say that you have a purely endoluminal stenosis that's either a congenital, something like a tracheal web or an acquired stenosis. If it's a pretty short segment, um, then it may be amenable to balloon dilation. Um, typically, that's going to be ideal for a sort of a thin, web-like, mature scar. Sometimes you can combine that with things like radial incisions, steroid injection, uh, and balloon dilation to, to get more effect. And um, while there's not clear data to guide us, a lot of people would try that two, three, four times before they say it's not working. If it is a fairly short segment uh, and either not amenable to or not responsive to dilation, you can also consider resection. Uh, the, that length that you can resect is pretty limited depending on the patient. So in in most children, I would say it's 25 to 30% of the tracheal length. So in a premature baby or a newborn, that's about a centimeter. In an infant, it's about a centimeter and a half. So it's not a very long length. So those are options. Um, and if you have a longer segment stenosis, then you might try a variety of things. Slide tracheoplasty is what I would typically use if it's a significant stenosis that needs intervention. But other people have used patch tracheoplasty. They've used grafts with cartilage. And uh, even in in extreme circumstances, replacing the trachea with things like allografts.
0: So let's talk a little bit about slide tracheoplasty. Um, What are some of the benefits of this approach compared to just the resection and reanastomosis?
1: So slide tracheoplasty is great because it's very adaptable. Um, It has some significant advantages uh, in that, unlike graft tracheoplasty, you are using native tracheal tissue. Unlike a simple resection and reanastomosis, you are distributing the tension over a very long suture line. And again, unlike resection and reanastomosis, instead of creating a circular anastomosis that might scar back down, you're creating an oval anastomosis Uh, that's less likely to do so. Um, So these are all really important uh, things. And really, though, I think the biggest advantage of this is that you're not limited by length. You can really slide a child from the cricoid well past the carina, uh, unlike a resection.
0: And I know this may be difficult without any pictures or drawings or anything, but... Uh, Can you try to describe exactly how this is done?
1: Sure. So it is certainly a complex procedure, but the basic geometry is if you imagine a paper towel roll as the trachea, uh, and let's say the whole length is stenotic. So you're going to transect the paper towel roll or trachea 50% of the way along its length. So at the midpoint of the stenosis, then you're going to fillet open the anterior surface of one half and the posterior surface of the other half and slide them over each other uh, so that you end up with a tube that's twice as wide and half as long.
0: And I can imagine that your approach might be different depending on exactly where the stenosis is in the trachea.
1: Correct. So you can access the upper half to two thirds of the trachea through the neck. Um, And if you do that, then you would typically, once you divide the trachea, intubate through the neck wound into that distal limb intermittently while you're fixing things. Um, If you're going any more distal than that, to the distal trachea, carina, and mainstem bronchi, then typically a different approach is required. Um, The most common approach nowadays is to do a median sternotomy and do this repair either on ECMO or bypass. Uh, There are people, including Dr. Grillo, who is a a, real leading uh, thoracic surgeon who would do this through a thoracotomy without bypass. Uh, But most people nowadays will do it via sternotomy with some sort of cardiopulmonary support.
0: And then if a resident is able to be involved in a case like this, do you have any key technical pearls or uh, pieces of wisdom that you can pass on?
1: (laughs) Sure. So a couple of things. The first is that typically you're going to do this anastomosis with a running double arm suture so that it's a, a single stitch doing the entire anastomosis. So be gentle with the stitch and don't blunt your needle. Don't grab the tip of the needle. Uh, another key thing is eversion of the edges of the of the cartilages as you're sewing them together. You can imagine, again, your paper towel roll that you've split the front of one half and the back of the other half, and you're sewing them together to make a bigger tube. You can picture that they would each half would want to curl back in on itself to resume its original circular shape, and that's called a figure-eight deformity. Cartilage does the same thing. And the best way to avoid that is as you're tightening each loop of your stitch, you want your partner across the table to evert the edges of the cartilage to minimize that risk. Keep in mind, too, that if you're doing this via thoracic approach, you're working through a pretty small window. So you're kind of working on the distal trachea through a square that's made by the superior vena cava on the right, the aorta on the left, the pulmonary artery inferiorly, and the anominate vessel superiorly. So you have a pretty small box to work through. So knowing your regional anatomy is critical here.
0: And then for children that have uh, concurrent cardiac anomalies... Are these usually repaired simultaneously, or is it a staged repair?
1: It depends on the anomaly. Typically, they're repaired at the same time because you've already got the sternotomy, you've already got the access, and the child is going to go on pump. So it's often best to do that at the same time if you can.
0: And then are there any kids that wouldn't be a good candidate for a slide tracheoplasty, either based on their underlying uh, medical conditions or the stenosis in character's? uh Characterization of the stenosis itself?
1: There are. They are few. Um, Slide tracheoplasty is adaptable enough, you can apply it to almost anyone. But the cases where it would not be useful is if you have no usable tracheal lumen. So, let's say you had a complete tracheal agenesis, you have nothing to slide with. Similarly, if you have absent tracheal rings, that segment cannot really be slid. So, it has to be at least partially resected. You can use slide tracheoplasty for a grade four stenosis with no lumen, but again, that's not ideal. So if you can resect the worst part of the stenosis and slide the rest, that's that's better. There are some kids who are just too sick to go through this, but to be honest, if you get to the point where you're considering it, you may not have a lot of choice because they have no salvageable airway uh, otherwise.
0: And then looking at tracheomalacia, I know we had talked about some conservative measures. Are there any surgical interventions that you can do for these kids that have more severe symptoms?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the mild kids you can manage with things like CPAP or medications, like we discussed. Uh, More severe, the traditional treatment has been tracheostomy and potentially administration of positive pressure through that. Um, But that's not always an easy uh, thing for families to adapt to. Uh, Aortopexy is an option. The idea there is that you basically approximate the aorta to the posterior sternum and the soft tissue attachments between the aorta and the trachea therefore pull the anterior wall of the trachea forward, widening its lumen. And again, as we discussed earlier, narrower airways tend to collapse more. Conversely, wider airways collapse less. And so you reduce some of that collapsibility with respiration. Um, Stenting is an option. And we can talk a little bit about different kinds of stents and indications. Uh, It's not an ideal option for a variety of reasons. Um, And then In really bad cases, if it's a segmental portion, uh, a segment of the trachea, you can potentially resect it or slide it. Um, Or in some rare cases, we've even done external bracing with cartilage grafts or plates.
0: So you mentioned that there's different types of stents that can be used. Can you elaborate on that a little bit and talk about the different types?
1: Yes. So there are a huge variety of stents and it's increasing all the time. But if we break them into general buckets, the first is what you could call balloon expandable stent that are typically metal mesh. One common example of this would be a Palma stent. Um, The nice thing about these is that you can adjust their diameter, you can conform them to tortuous airways, you can flare them so that the ends dig into the mucosa so they don't slide. And the epithelium can actually grow through the meshwork. So once things heal up, you don't lose ciliary function quite as much. However, these can provoke a lot of granulation uh, because they get incorporated into the tracheal wall after you know six or eight weeks, removing them can be very problematic and damaging to the mucosa or even the wall of the airway, um, and they can erode into adjacent structures. Um, another option is a covered mesh stent. So one common example would be an eye cast stent. And the idea there is again you have this metallic mesh with all the advantages in terms of being able to flare it and shape it and adjust its diameter uh, with a balloon, but it has a coating over it so that you can't get tissue ingrowth, so it's a lot easier to remove. The drawback there is that you can get biofilms on the internal aspect of the stent which can lead to plugging and mucus buildup. Sort of with the same types of problems as that coated stent are silicone stents, so the Dumon, the hood stent, cut T-tubes, things like that. They're pretty easy to place uh, depending on their shape. They can either hold themselves in place or you have to secure them with a suture. They're pretty non-reactive, and so you don't have a lot of granulation formation and so on often. Uh, but there's no mucociliary clearance or ciliary function for that stretch uh, of the airway. Um, they don't conform to the airway well. Uh, they can have biofilm and plug, uh, and they can migrate because they're smooth and slippery, and which is why sometimes you need to suture them. Um, a new uh, area that's emerging is what are called bioabsorbable stents, um, so things like the Ella stent. Uh, these were developed for esophageal use. They're typically self-expanding and made of PDS for the most part. Um, They can be custom ordered for use in the airway and they're used a fair bit in Europe for that purpose. Um, The nice thing about them is they last six to eight weeks and dissolve away. And if you need to place a new one, you just place it, but you don't have the problems of having to remove the stent and damage the airway uh, as you do that.
0: And then finally, uh, quickly discussing vascular rings. What do we do about that? Is there any surgical treatment for vascular rings?
1: Yeah, vascular rings are um, often managed surgically, uh, typically in collaboration with our cardiovascular surgery colleagues. Uh, Depending on the type of ring, uh, you essentially divide the ring and create space for the airway. So if you have a double aortic arch, usually the right side is dominant, so you get rid of the left side. if you have a pulmonary artery sling that's causing significant problems, then you can either divide the sling and reimplant the pulmonary artery, uh, or if you also have to repair the trachea, then sometimes you can divide the trachea and transpose it anterior to the pulmonary artery before you do your slide anastomosis.
0: So focusing specifically on open airway surgery, what is the typical regimen for a patient postoperatively?
1: So the most critical thing is to keep in mind what are the things that can go wrong, Um so one thing that can go wrong is you can overpressurize the repair with your mechanical ventilation and blow open the anastomosis and cause a partial or complete dehiscence. So we want these kids spontaneously ventilating or negative pressure ventilating as soon as possible. Uh, another thing that can happen is you can get granulation from the ET tube. So again, we try to get these kids extubated as soon as we can, hopefully within a day or two if they do well. Um, third possibility is you know you've got the suture line in the airway that can accumulate clot or mucus. Uh, because you don't have ciliary function right at that point. And that can be prevented with high humidity, uh, and if the child is intubated, then frequent drips of saline down the ET tube with suctioning as well. Those are some of the key things that can happen. We also like to do follow-up endoscopy, uh, usually a week after surgery, to look for things like that figure 8 deformity and granulation tissue and so on. Uh, and then, um, obviously, we have to be careful about starting feeds afterwards until we're sure that their recurrent nerves are working, since those run right next to the trachea and might be injured.
0: And then, what does long-term care and follow-up look like for patients that have undergone open airway reconstruction?
1: So these kids do uh, need long-term follow-up. Um, they need routine airway endoscopy, uh, and the idea is that we want to make sure that the anastomosis continues to grow with them, that their airway continues to grow with them. Uh, so. Typically I will bring kids back a week after surgery, a couple weeks after surgery, a month after surgery, three months after surgery, six months, a year, and then do it every six months for a couple of years and then space it out after that. That's just my routine. Uh, a lot of people do it differently, but regardless, I think everyone who does this kind of operation is going to be following these kids over the long term.
0: And then, when you're talking to parents preoperatively and you're counseling them on the risks of surgery, we had talked about suture line breakdown and granulation tissue formation, figure eight uh, deformity. What about the long term rate of restenosis? What do you kind of counsel parents about when you're talking to them about this?
1: Yeah, so there's not a huge amount of data on this, but in general, if you do a slide tracheoplasty successfully, let's use that as an example, um, then the rate of restenosis is actually quite low. Um, the I think the most common reasons that you would need to go back and reoperate or reintervene is either during the initial post-operative course if things don't go perfectly or if some pathology was missed. So for example, if you do a slide tracheoplasty or a resection, but you miss some area of the stenosis, that's still there.
0: And then as far as the natural history of tracheal stenosis goes, what would likely happen to these patients should no intervention be performed?
1: That's a really important question, and something that's really important to counsel parents about. So let's start with tracheomalacia. Tracheomalacia typically gets better with age. Um, it sometimes worsens in toddlerhood because the child starts being more active and puts more demand on their airway and is breathing harder. Uh, but typically, as a typical kind of congenital tracheomalacia will improve by age two to three years. Sometimes it can take longer. Uh, it's important to warn parents that until things improve as the child grows, the child may have frequent hospitalizations, may have prolonged symptoms when they have respiratory infections, may have more difficulty with activity, and so on. If the child is syndromic, then perhaps they are more likely to have prolonged symptoms into an older age with the trachea malacia. If they have more of an intraluminal or cartilaginous stenosis of the airway, the symptoms you might expect to get worse with age as they put more demand on their airway and they essentially outgrow their airway lumen. Um, That said, even kids with complete tracheal rings, the literature suggests that maybe 10 to 15% of them will never need intervention, but you have to follow them over time because even if they have a growth spurt in their teen years, they might start to develop symptoms then. Uh, We've had patients before who were college athletes who had undiagnosed complete rings. uh, that became symptomatic when they started doing really competitive sports. Of course, if there is a very severe stenosis, then the risk to the child in terms of morbidity and mortality is much higher, and so then you would counsel more strongly for intervention.
0: So before we move on to our summary, can you comment on any potential future directions of the field of tracheal uh, open airway surgery, any new advances or new techniques that are being developed?
1: Sure. So um, there's some pretty cool stuff going on uh, all over the place. So um, one hot topic, of course, is tracheal replacement. There's a group of superb surgeons in Paris who a couple of years ago published in the New England Journal where they essentially rebuilt a child's trachea out of free flaps and cartilage grafts. Um, that's pretty amazing. Another option, of course, is uh, tissue engineering. And there are people who are working on uh, developing scaffolds and cell seeding to do that. Uh, tracheal transplantation is something that's in the works as well. Uh, and of course, robotics is a hot topic, though currently nobody is doing robotic tracheal surgery. We are working on developing that technique right now.
0: All right. So in summary, patient presentation is dependent on the degree of stenosis, but common presenting symptoms include strider, wheezing, cough, recurrent respiratory infections, and varying degrees of respiratory distress. Common causes include congenital tracheal rings or tracheal sleeve, external compression from vasculature or other mass, dynamic collapse due to tracheal malaysia, and acquired stenosis from previous intubation or tracheostomy. Bronchoscopy is the gold standard for airway evaluation and uh, diagnosis, intubation and manipulation of the stenotic segment should be avoided when possible to prevent edema and additional stenosis. And often in congenital tracheal stenosis, the stenosis is a funneled shape. So the more distal segment is going to be the most stenotic. There is a high prevalence of associated anomalies, which should be kept in mind during history gathering in both bedside and endoscopic evaluation. And patients with mild to moderate symptoms can sometimes be managed conservatively, while patients with severe stenosis will likely require intervention. Short segments of stenosis may be able to be treated endoscopically, but longer or more severe segments will likely require open airway surgery. Dr. Balakrishnan, thank you again for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: Uh, thank you, Alyssa. This was great. Um, the only thing I'd like to add is just as the listeners can tell, this is a very complex field and these are complex children. I think um, that it's always worth considering that these might be best managed through a multidisciplinary program, like an aerodigestive program or a complex airway reconstruction program, rather than doing it as a one-off.
0: Awesome. Again, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. I'll now move on to the question portion of this podcast. As a reminder, I will ask a question, pause for a few seconds, and then give the answer. So the first question is, what causes the dynamic collapse seen in tracheal malaysia? So during exhalation, extraluminal pressure exceeds the intraluminal airway pressure. And in tracheomalacia, the weakened cartilage is unable to withstand this pressure, uh, pressure differential, which leads to collapse of the airway. The second question is, what are some common symptoms in patients with tracheal stenosis? Some common presenting symptoms are strider, wheezing, cough. In varying degrees of respiratory distress. Our third question is what syndromes are associated with tracheal sleeve and what vascular anomaly is most commonly associated with complete tracheal rings? Tracheal sleeve is associated. With Cruzon, Pfeiffer, and Golden Har syndromes, and then complete tracheal rings are associated with pulmonary artery sling. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.